Good morning, everybody. The scripture reading for today is Matthew 11, 1 through 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds Christ had done, he sent his disciples to ask questions. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed unto them. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. While they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fancy clothes? Hold on, I lost my... Look, those who wear fancy clothes are in the homes of kings. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, no one has a reason greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you, Monica, for reading scripture and music team. And Evelyn, I'm always impressed to see a member of the Pembroke family up on this stage. You are the matriarch of of a music team that has blessed our family. And so uh, I also want to add my um, welcome to you if you're a visitor or guest, a welcome to mothers, a thanksgiving for mothers, grandmothers, spiritual mothers, and to also express my acknowledgement of the sensitivity this day for, for many, many people. Um, we have a business rule, a relationship rule in my house between my wife and I that uh, I am not allowed to speak about anything to do with mothering or giving birth. So uh, I won't be talking about those things because I couldn't possibly know um, truly how hard it is to be a mom. It is, I think, one of the most difficult callings uh, for humankind. Uh, But I am the father of six children. I have two adult sons. I have four little ones at home, three sons and a daughter. Um, And it's an interesting study in our house of nature versus nurture. We uh, have all sets of different personalities and temperaments. And um, since we're in this continuing in this Easter season, I'm reminded of of when I look at the Easter baskets in our house, it's, it's a real descriptor of who our children are. Three of those baskets are absolutely empty. 
And they've been empty since probably 9 o'clock at night on Easter Sunday. And the fourth basket is completely full. It belongs to one child who um, is very much in control of, of his consumption. And uh, there might even be a bucket full of Halloween candy. And we're just waiting for the expiration dates to, to get rid of those. It's the same child who has a large bank account on behalf, on, on account of the tooth fairy from which we draw upon occasionally to pay our property taxes. Um, but we joke that this child is the master of delayed gratification. He has a stubborn streak, and I mean that both complimentarily and frustratingly as a parent. Um, will withstand any form of torture if he ever becomes a Navy SEAL, I'm certain of it. But, uh, but I hope he doesn't become a Navy SEAL. Um, but delayed gratification. Psychologists agree that, that it leads to more positive outcomes in life, if you can agree with psychologists. There was a experiment in the 1970s that studied delayed gratification. It's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've seen some clips of these children. The, the, the idea was that in order to study people's response, children's response in particular to delayed gratification, the, the psychologist would present them with a marshmallow and, and, and say, look, if you can wait 15 minutes and not eat this marshmallow, you'll get a second one. But if you want, go ahead and eat it. But if you can wait, you'll get a second one. And so... Um, as they conducted the study, and some succeeded, and, and some consumed the marshmallow right away, their, their results that they came up with were, in, in looking at these children longitudinally over years, that, that these children who displayed higher degrees of delayed gratification um, scored higher on the SAT, achieved higher educational outcomes, were less prone to addiction. And their parents, of course, described them as more competent, as proud parents would. Marshmallows. Some of the best marshmallows I've ever had in my life were from a grocery store in Los Angeles. My wife and I lived in a predominantly Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, and at certain times of the year, you would get these kosher marshmallows. They they just tasted absolutely different than what you and I might be used to from our childhood, or if you're a consumer of marshmallows. Um, and Jesus was a Jew, right? So if he ate marshmallows, it would be these marshmallows. Right? To, to tie it back to. So, um, but it's not eating kosher marshmallows, but the importance of delaying gratification, which is my tie-in to Jesus in this scripture this morning. So stick with me here, if you will. It's a very oblique reference to marshmallows there. Stick with me. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, we're, we're continuing this morning in our series on Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus, in his ministry, has been inaugurating the restoration of the kingdom. He's going around and he's preaching throughout Galilee. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Though many thought that Jesus would not just inaugurate the kingdom, but restore the kingdom in its fullness, that the Davidic kingdom would be brought back to Israel, that the yoke of Roman oppression would be thrown off, and that the nation of Israel would realize all of the promises that God had continued to reiterate 
to them throughout their history. Well, in the section of Matthew's gospel that is chapters 8, 9, and 10, Matthew's been showing us how Jesus is bringing the kingdom into people's lives. He's, he's healing sick people. He's curing incurable diseases. He's calming storms. And he's raising the dead. And at the end of this section in chapter 10, we see Jesus, as we saw last two weeks, Jesus calls the 12 disciples. He gives them authority, the scripture tells us, over unclean spirits. And he sends them out with specific instructions to heal. And he sends them out to the lost sheep of Israel. Not to the Gentiles at this stage, but go to Israel. But he also sends them with a warning. He says, as you go about doing kingdom things, you're going to be accepted and you're going to be rejected. And so where we pick up in the gospel this morning, we we begin to see how Matthew is starting to unfold how Jesus and his disciples are being received. How are these people being are responding to what Jesus is doing? Some are very positive, certain that this is the, the Messiah who was promised, the, the Messiah who John the Baptist pointed them toward. And some are neutral, still unsure if this is the one. Does it line up with their expectations? And then we'll see that others are very much against Jesus. They're hostile toward him and his claims that that he is the anointed one of Israel, the one that all of the scriptures, all of the prophets have foretold. And so this morning, we begin to see that, that, that doubt and even taking offense to who Jesus is, is an issue in the kingdom. We look at verse 1, it, we see that, that Jesus has sent out to his disciples. It says when Jesus has finished instructing his 12 disciples, he sent them out. He went on from there to teach and to preach in the cities and in the towns. Jesus is, has sent out his disciples, but he's continuing to do his ministry of teaching and preaching in the cities and towns throughout Galilee. And then in verse 2, we're sort of confronted with this piece of information that we haven't encountered in Matthew's gospel before. It says, now when John, that is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. John the Baptist in prison? Well, you probably knew he was imprisoned. You probably, if you are familiar with your Bible, know that he was beheaded in prison. But Matthew hasn't told us this yet. So we won't really learn the details of John's imprisonment until three chapters later in Matthew 14. So a bit of a spoiler alert here. But but John had publicly rebuked Herod, who was the Tetrarch, the ruler of Galilee. He'd rebuked Herod for his marital affairs, or rather his extramarital and then marital affairs. You see, Herod had visited his brother Philip in Rome. And while there, Herod had seduced Philip's wife, Herodias. And then Herod returned home, divorced his wife, convinced or lured his sister-in-law to divorce her husband and to marry him. And so because John had denounced this behavior, Herod's wife, Herodias, convinced her husband to have John thrown into prison. 
prison in a desert fortress at a location called Machaerus. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. It's far south of Galilee. It's a hot and, and uncomfortable place. If you look it up on Google Maps, it's inter- I, I chuckled yesterday. It said, opened in 90 B.C., open 24 hours. <clears throat> it has about 397 reviews, averaging three and a half stars. I'm certain that John's review was probably negative. But, but Herod had other reasons to keep John in prison aside from his judgment of Herod and Herodias' morals. We, we know from reading the, the Jewish priest and scholar and historian Flavius Josephus, who wrote in the first century, we know that, that Herod was fearful of John and the influence that he had among the people. John was someone who had such a reputation among Israelites that, that the political leadership feared that he could incite them to a riot or some sort of violence or a hostile overthrow of the government. And then we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not fans of John either. Back, we read in Matthew 3, John calls them, you brood of vipers. And he reads them the riot act, if you will. So the Pharisees and the, the, the teachers of the law, they, they benefited by having John imprisoned as well. Well, it's interesting to note that, that Herod, by what limited historical accounts we have, did not mistreat John in prison before beheading him. He is reported to have often had conversations with him, and he allowed John's own disciples to visit him. So John, even though he's in prison far away from Galilee, it was easy for John to know what Jesus was doing. And so John, we read here in verse 2, right? When he heard about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, his disciples said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It's, it's a, it can be a perplexing verse. How on earth is John the Baptist questioning Jesus's identity? Is John wavering in his faith? Is John languishing in a desert prison, wavering in his faith? Well, some commentators think it's doubt and others think it's something else. I, I want to say that we can deduce with some reasonable clarity that, that John did not question who Jesus was, but John is questioning what Jesus is doing. And we can deduce this because at Jesus' baptism, John baptized, or Jesus baptized by John comes out of the water and John observes the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on Jesus. The Spirit already having revealed to John that, that here is one greater than him. John hearing a voice from the heavens declaring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I find it hard personally to believe that having witnessed those things in a very divine and powerful way that John would somehow now be questioning Jesus's identity. So if John knows who Jesus is by direct revelation from the spirit of God and hearing the voice of of God himself, then what is John's question? What's the question behind 
the question, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? I think John's asking, can we be confident that you are doing what is promised? Why aren't, or more directly, harshly, why aren't you doing what I expect you to do? Coming back to the marshmallow experiment, this experiment showed that that frustration that was experienced while waiting for a reward directly affected the outcome. Those children who were able to somehow distract themselves from this frustration, tapping on a table, singing, talking to themselves, crawling on the floor, even someone taking a nap, they experienced greater success in the experiment. Well, 40 years after the original experiment in the 1970s, in the, in the early 2000s, there was a follow-on study that determined that, that a belief that the promised reward would actually be delivered in spite of the delay is an important determinant in how well subjects delayed their own gratification. So if, if, if you lose faith that the reward is actually going to come, then you have nothing to gain by waiting. Eat the marshmallow. Take matters into your own hands. Lash out. You see, John recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus' actions, they're, they're not meeting John's expectation of what the Messiah would be doing. And so his, in, his frustration or his impatience, it rises into action, and he sends his disciples to question Jesus publicly. And I don't know if John's somehow, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, right? John had some familial relationship to Jesus. It's the, the sanguinity of that relationship isn't absolutely clear. But I don't know if John's exercising some family privilege, you know, like, hey, man, I remember you, 13-year-old at the barbecue. You're you're being a knucklehead. Okay, but I, it's it's not cool to send your disciples and question Jesus publicly. But but how does Jesus respond? Look at verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them. He answers the disciples. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. What, what John, what they've already been telling John. But Jesus is, is calling them back to the prophecies of Isaiah. The deaf hear. The blind see. The lame walk. The meek are encouraged. The poor are comforted. The dead are raised. Everything that the prophets foretold of the Messiah, Jesus is doing throughout his ministry. This It's not a surprise to John. He's heard the reports of these things. You see, John's stumbling block here is what Isaiah calls the stone of offense. In Isaiah chapter 8, in verses 14 and 15, he writes, And he, speaking of the deliverer of Israel, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. Perhaps what should give us pause as we 
look at this story and keep us humble is precisely who stumbled on this rock. Friends, if John the Baptist can stumble here, so can you and I. There's this reality to expectation mismatch for John the Baptist. It was that Jesus did not appear to be the Messiah that John had imagined. Jesus wasn't bringing an axe to the root of the tree and those that were not bearing fruit as he warned the brood of vipers. Things weren't happening fast enough for John. Things weren't happening direct enough for John. And John, as a result of his discipleship, is languishing in a prison and suffering. So Jesus says, go tell John what you hear and what you see. But he adds a postscript in verse 6. He says, and... Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Offended, the the Greek word here is the word from which we get the English term scandalized. It means to be offended because of some action or to give up believing what is right and to let oneself believe what is false. More seriously for our spiritual lives, it's it's a fall into sin due to certain contributing circumstances. You see, offense is is part of this broken and fallen world that we live in. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us have been offended at some point or another, maybe even today. You and I as believers, we're far from being immune to offense. We're, we're, we're capable of doing this in our own relationship with Christ. We're capable of doing this in our own relationship with others. It's one of the greatest pitfalls the devil uses to trip us up in our walk. And our offense, friends, can take a lot of different forms. But, but as Christians, we're subject to it because we, we know the truth. We, we have a high desire for things to be the way that God intends them to be. We have a high sense of justice, of what is right or correct. And so when something's wrong, it's, it's very, very easy for us to become offended by it. And we're living today in a surrounding culture that, that, that literally seems engineered through social media and, 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 and political strife to, to engineer offense as, as part of how different sides wage cultural Warfare. We live in a culture today that, that feeds and promotes offense. But what we should take note is that what does this look like for us when we're missing the mark? It's not, when Christians are offended, to be blunt, we're, we're self-focused, we're self-interested, we're self-focused and self-interested Christians, and in our self-interest, we, we can respond, we can strike outwardly, or we can retreat inwardly from relationships. Harboring offense, we might mobilize to fight for the way that we think, the way that we think things should be. Harboring offense, 
conversely, might cause us to guard our thoughts, our rights, and our personal relationships very carefully. But friends, harboring offense consumes our energy with, with making sure that we, we manage risk in relationships and we, we mitigate the likelihood that, that we might somehow be injured. But if we don't risk being hurt, we can't love unconditionally. You see, those who are hurt and disappointed are those who have have come to Jesus for what he can do for them, not because of who he is. Unconditional love, as we've already heard in this sermon series, it demands that we, we love our enemies, that we turn the other cheek, that we go the extra mile. That doesn't sound like people who are harboring offense. And if we've given ourselves totally to Jesus and if we're committed to his care, then, then we shouldn't easily be offended because we aren't our own. We belong to Christ. And so as we see Jesus' response here, he's not offended by John's question. But his reply is to John, don't be offended by me. Jesus says in verse 6, he says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. It's the same Greek word that he used in the Beatitudes, blessed. It's, a, it's this ideal condition of heart and character. And, and the state of our heart and character should be that of ones whose, whose moral sensibilities are not shocked by Jesus and what he's called us to or how he's doing it. Or how he's not meeting our timeline or our expectations. And what is it that he's called us to do? He's called us to love our enemies, to show mercy toward others, to suffer and to take up our cross. And when your confidence wanes in the promises that you hold to in your faith, let it lead you to Christ not away from him. Don't lash out. Lash up. That's my little alliteration this morning. I'm drawing from this imagery of in Homer's Odyssey, right? Odysseus has his sailors lash him to the mast of the ship so that he can hear the siren song. The sirens would tempt sailors to their death. And his crew members fill their ears with beeswax and row through or pass the sirens. And Odysseus begs them to untie him, but he's tied to this mast. Friends, for you and I, when we're tempted to be offended, when we're tempted to be disappointed in Jesus, to be disappointed in the church, to be disappointed in one another, we need to lash ourselves to the mast that is Jesus Christ and keep rowing. So as John's disciples leave with Jesus' answer, Jesus turns to the crowds and he gives this marvelous tribute to John. This very man who's taken offense at Jesus and is questioning him publicly, Jesus doesn't lash out at John. He, he pays him tribute while giving further instructions to his hearers. And he, and he gives them a set of contrasts to remind them of who John really is. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
Did you go out to the wilderness to see someone who's blown back and forth by popular opinion, trying to please the masses? No, you went out to see somebody because you thought he had something important to offer. There was something about John and his message that attracted people to him. He says, did you go out to see someone living a comfortable life in soft clothing? No, you went out to see a prophet and not just any prophet. Verse 10, Jesus tells them that John was more than a regular prophet, that he was the last of the great Old Testament prophets and the herald of the messianic age that everyone who had been waiting for. And so as we come to verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the greatest human being born of women. But he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets. What does Jesus mean by this? Some might deduce from this that that John the Baptist is is not in the kingdom of heaven as a result of his wavering faith. And I, I don't hold to that view personally. I think what Jesus is saying is that is that you and I living under a a new covenant empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we live in a kingdom reality in a way that John the Baptist did not. And Jesus is reminding his hearers of that. When you're in the kingdom and you're committed with single-minded devotion to the king, you're even closer to Jesus than the greatest human who's been born to women. Happy Mother's Day. And then he goes on in in verse 12, though, he says, uh, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the law and the prophets, or excuse me, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. This idea of the the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Some translations read the kingdom of heaven advances forcefully. And people take from that 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 we, as modern day Christians, should advance the kingdom through force. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. The majority interpretation is that the kingdom is suffering violence. Violent People are carrying out the violence from which the kingdom suffers. Those violent people, I would argue, are both outside and some inside the church. There are people who identify with Christ who want to see the kingdom advance by force, whether that be the the force of politics, the force of information, the force of economics, and even military force. But that does not to me, seem to be what Jesus has been calling us to. There's opposition to the kingdom. The prophets suffered. John the Baptist suffered. 
Christ suffered. The disciples suffer. Jesus tells us that you and I will suffer. The kingdom of God suffers violence and it still advances. And Jesus repeatedly warns his followers that the people of God don't suffer in spite of their righteousness. We suffer because of it. And that's the marvelous paradox of this Easter season. That through a death comes life. In John's gospel, it lets a seed, falls to the ground and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus, later in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, if anyone desires to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Friends, the cross is not some awkward, inconvenient or heavy load. It's, it's an instrument of death. When you and I pick up our cross, it's leading us to our death. Not to some fight, but to our death. And in verses 13 and 14, we see that, that John, Jesus affirms that, that John functioned in this ministry role of Elijah, the, the forerunner of the Messiah that we heard about in our call to worship this morning. But here's the thing that we need to take away, I think, from this this morning, that, that the kingdom, friends, it's, it's advancing according to God's plan. You and I don't need to worry about whether it's happening the way God wants it to happen, whether it's happening on the right timeline. You and I don't need to spend a lot of time trying to read the signs of the times to figure out when it's all going to end. The scriptures are really clear that our job is to focus on being disciples of Jesus. To reflect his heart and his character. To reflect his image. To go out and love self-sacrificially the way that he loved. And he ends, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says, those who have childlike faith, a faith less encumbered with preconceived notions or wrong interpretations or misinformed or misguided expectations, those are the ones who see and hear most clearly in the kingdom of heaven. The child of God, the one who has ears and hears, takes no offense when God doesn't do what we expect or what we ask. And so as we come to the end of the passage here in verses 16 to 19, Jesus says, again, calling back to this imagery of children, he says, to what shall I compare this generation? This generation, he's talking to to Israel. This generation of Israel. To what shall I compare you to? You're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to your playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. And you did not mourn. He's saying, you're like children. We, we did this, but you didn't do that. We asked you to do this and you didn't do it. Are you the one who we should expect or not? So Jesus is making this contrast between those in Israel who have ears to hear and, and those in Israel who are petulant children for whom nothing is ever to their liking. And he gives an example. He says, right? I mean, who did they think John the Baptist was? 
John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. You know, John, he, he was too strict. He needs to loosen up. Have a little fun, John. And the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinner. John, loosen up. Jesus, tighten up. Satisfy our expectations. But Jesus says that the, the, the proof of the wisdom that has taken root in our hearts is our deeds. Our deeds are the offspring of wisdom. The scriptures tell us that in the day of judgment, we're not going to be judged based on whether our expectations of who Jesus was aligned with who he really was. We're going to be judged by the things that we did and that we said to fellow image bearers, believers and non-believers. As much as you did for the least of these, you did for me also. Our deeds are the offspring of wisdom. And so, friends, we have to tie ourselves to the mast that is Jesus. As we sail through the storms of life, prone to offense at God, prone to offense to others in the church, prone to offense at the world around us, we're to tie ourselves to the mass that is Jesus, confident that the Father, Son, and Spirit have provided all of the evidence that we need to believe that he is the Messiah of Israel, that he is the hope for the Gentiles, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And you and I, can we can have the same confidence of the children that were the subjects of the marshmallow experiment, that, that Jesus is the reliable tester who's going to come back into the room at the end of the age and give us the reward that we've been longing for. He's coming back. But he's coming back at a day and at an hour you and I can never predict. And friends, we waste our time trying to figure it out, trying to read the signs of the times, our job is to move together into the remarkable love of Jesus Christ and to share it with the world. And so may you and I not, not spend our time and effort demanding signs of the times and attempting to read into them, but may, may we deny ourselves and pick up our crosses and follow him. And he tells us his, his yoke is easy and his burden, his light And he is far more than you and I couldn't ever ask for or imagine. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, we just come to you with such humble gratitude for the way that you have revealed your Son to the world as our Lord and Savior. that he came to earth as a man, that he performed all of the signs that the scriptures foretold, that he fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. That he preached and teached to encourage us to, to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. 
to strive to fulfill the requirements of the law, the, the perfect law that is love, to, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So, Father, would you strengthen us for this journey? Would you illuminate our hearts and minds to know where perhaps we have unrealistic expectations? And, Father, not that we'll ever be free of the temptation to be offended, but, Father, would you help us by the power of your Spirit to lay those down at the feet of your Son? Would you cause us not to to lash out, but to turn toward you and to cling to you? Would you cause us not to retreat from our fellow Christians, from the culture around us, God, but, but cause us to engage in a, in a gentle and loving way, in the way that you did, Jesus. Father, you have promised us that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Help us to walk in the confidence and faith that we can be the church, Father, that you're at work, And that it doesn't depend on us, God. We simply need to surrender ourselves to you. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.